i te mea he kotahi tangata, nana e whakara te pō. E te iwi, nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā, ko maraia rakuraku mai wako. Tānato tūta tēnei, kia ora tātou katoa. In Te Ahikā this week, we take a look at the rights of Indigenous peoples. We'll hear from the head of the International Indian Treaty Council and what she thinks the United Nations can do better to address issues facing Indigenous peoples. Indigenous media is the focus of our archival segment, Nga Tonga Kōrero. For us, you know, um, having the network is, is, is an opportunity to turn around to these people and say, sorry, that's not Māori friendly, we don't want it. If our means of communication is a way of presenting ourselves to the world, then the direction and management of that material must be handled in a way as to accurately represent the people and philosophy of those people. The issues surrounding the intellectual property rights of Indigenous peoples was highlighted at a conference held recently in Sydney. Pākehā, Barbara Sullivan is a Wellington-based lawyer specialising in trademark and copyright law. At the conference, she facilitated a discussion on trademarks and the rights of Indigenous peoples. This was a conference about trademarks and it was organised by the Australian Intellectual Property Office, which is the government office that registers trademarks and patents and designs, and the International Trademark Association, which is a multinational organisation which represents, I think, about 8,000 brand owners throughout the world. The people at the conference were um, government officials from around the world and brand owners from Asia-Pacific and lawyers from Asia-Pacific. The um, purpose of the conference was to... It was an educational conference about trademarks. What, what, what is a trademark? A trademark is a brand or a logo or a word or a design or even a colour, any symbol that distinguishes the products of one person from those of another. So, for example, well-known trademarks... Uh, in New Zealand are Adidas, All Blacks, um, the colour purple for Whiskers cat food. You can also register a shape as a trademark if it's distinctive. So the Toblerone chocolate triangular shape is registered. So the actual the shape co- of the, of the yeah, product is sure. a trademark. Yeah. So why do we need to protect it? What are we protecting it from? Um, The reason for protecting trademarks is really to protect the public from being deceived by the presence of counterfeit goods on the market, just to ensure that the product that they buy under a trademark is the one that they want and isn't an imitation or a rip-off. So so what were some of the issues that were discussed at the uh, conference in Sydney? Uh, There are a number of issues um, relating to use of trademarks on the internet, for example, um, use of trademarks in sport. But the the panel that I was involved in looked at Indigenous peoples' cultural properties, their taonga and trademarks, and the issues that arise in that area. I was involved with a panel discussion um, on the subject of Indigenous peoples and trademarks. On the panel with me were Robin Quigan, 
an Aboriginal lawyer, um, Karen Waka from New Zealand. Karen is the chair of the Māori Trademarks Advisory Committee that's set up under the Trademarks Act. Leo Watson, who's a barrister from Paikakariki, and Leo advises a range of Māori clients on Māori intellectual property issues, uh, a lawyer from Fiji and another lawyer from Australia. And we were looking at a number of issues that arise in this area. In recent years, there's been an increased awareness of the importance of preserving the taonga of Indigenous peoples. People realise what's been lost and they want to protect what they have. And at the same time, modern methods of communications and travel mean that uh, Indigenous cultures are exposed to global audiences. And at the same time, um, the global economy means that there's increasing sameness. And so people look to find points of difference and many trademark owners want new, different words, logos, whatever, to distinguish their products from those of other traders. And this is where some of the problems arise because some taonga should only be, shouldn't be used by people outside the culture some shouldn't be used for certain products, such as alcohol. And other taonga are so sacred, they shouldn't be used by anyone for any trade purposes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these, this was the sort of background to the panel discussion, and our purpose was to educate the audience about these issues. What was the audience reaction? The audience were... In- very, very interested. They, in fact, said that the panel discussion was one of the highlights of the conference. Um, many of them hadn't appreciated the issues. Some people said that they'd come along thinking that this was, you know, about political correctness. But having listened to Robin Quigan, the Aboriginal lawyer, having, having listened to Karen Waka and Leo Watson and the lawyer from Fiji... They said that they were sort of taken on a journey. They thought there really is something to this. You know, there are genuine grievances here and there are issues that we should be aware of. During our panel discussion, we posed a number of questions which we then answered for the audience. And these were, who are Indigenous people? Now, it was a surprise to many people in the audience to learn that there are 350 million indigenous people throughout the world representing some 5,000 different languages and cultures spread across more than 70 different countries and that indigenous people are usually defined as the living descendants of the first inhabitants of a territory. The second question, what do indigenous people want? They want to protect their culture. They want to protect their taonga as a living and lived-in reality. What are the issues? We discussed the different types of issues that are involved when people make unauthorised, often inappropriate use 
of symbols or traditional cultural expressions, and particularly as trademarks in relation to products. We then looked at how can Indigenous peoples' cultural expressions in Taonga be protected, to what extent intellectual property laws, particularly trademark laws, can assist, where do trademark laws and other intellectual property laws fall short, and what are the developments on the international scene. Mm. We talked about the draft model law that has been developed by the South Pacific Commission, and we look, talked about the work of a, an intergovernmental committee of the World Intellectual Property Organisation that's looking at an international level at protection of Indigenous peoples' cultural properties. At the conference, um, did you notice these same issues were being also raised by other Indigenous people from around the world? The same issues about misappropriation, inappropriate use, inability to protect Taonga came up. Um, in some instances, with some examples, intellectual property laws do help. For example, I've mentioned the trademark laws. Um, if a particular symbol is going to be used as a trademark mm. by a Māori party or a Māori group, it can be registered as a trademark and that registration provides protection for the use of that symbol for the goods and services that are encompassed by the registration. For example, the copyright laws can protect the new haka that Derek Lardelli composed for the All Blacks and I understand that the All Blacks and Derek Lardelli have applied to register the words of that haka as a trademark. However, the kamati haka, te Rokraha's haka, has been the subject of an application for registration as a trademark by Ngāti Toa, the kaitiaki, and to date that application has been unsuccessful. And copyright laws can't apply here because copyright is for a limited term. Mm -hmm. It expires 50 years after the death of the author. And this uh -huh. is one of the main problems with the intellectual property laws when it comes to protecting taonga. They're for a limited duration. Why? With some intellectual property laws, like patents and designs and copyright, the, there is a bargain between a contract between the government and the intellectual property rights holder. Under the laws, the intellectual property rights holder is given a monopoly to use the intellectual property, whether it be an invention under a patent or a design or an artistic or literary work under copyright. And then at the end of the period of protection, the work or the invention comes into the public domain and is available for other people to enjoy. And this is one of the reasons why traditional intellectual property laws aren't appropriate when it comes to protecting taonga, because often the 
authorship of a taonga work isn't known and time limits aren't appropriate. Mm. Now I understand you're off to uh, Germany for a similar conference. That's correct. This is a, a conference of trademark lawyers and it's anticipated that there'll be perhaps 8,000 meeting in May. And at this conference... I'm going to take part in a workshop which discusses these issues, Indigenous people's taonga and trademarks. And um, who's involved in this conference? This will be intellectual property lawyers, primarily trademark lawyers, and, of course, trademark owners from around the world, but on a bigger scale. Bigger scale? Yeah. Just had a quick question about the Pacific Islands. Now, are they also seeing a lot of their own um, intellectual property being used overseas? I'm sure there would be examples hmm. where the words or images or designs of people from Pacific cultures are being used overseas without authorization. But the problem people in the Pacific face is they're much smaller countries, not hmm. as well hmm. resourced. An interesting development in the Pacific, though, is that the South Pacific Commission has prepared a draft model law for protection of traditional cultural expressions. At the moment, no country has adopted the law, but it's there in place. On Te Ahika, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about um, Aboriginal rights. The Australian Aboriginal people, are they also having the same issues being brought up? And if so, because they're from a bigger country, is their government supporting them address, to address these issues? I think without doubt there's increasing awareness of these issues in Australia today, particularly in light of recent political developments there. The situation in Australia is different from that in New Zealand, um, where in New Zealand there is a common language Māori. In Australia, the, there are many different peoples, each with its own language. There the situation is a large number of different peoples, different languages, different cultures spread over a vast geographical area. There have been recent cases in Australia dealing with unauthorised copying and use of Aboriginal designs. And in some cases, the copyright laws have been successfully employed to stop that abuse. And I know that there are several organisations that are very active in this area. Now, you've bought in this bottle of rum. Um, the most interesting thing about this bottle is the name of the of the product and the designs on the bottle. Can you just explain where this came from? It's a bottle of seven tiki rum that's produced in New Zealand by the company, I think it's 42 South. And there's a representation of a tiki on it and some Polynesian-looking designs. Now, this trademark seven tiki is registered in both New Zealand and 
Fiji and perhaps other countries for rum. The application in New Zealand was referred to the Māori Advisory Committee who advised the Commissioner that use of seven tiki on this product wouldn't cause offence or would be unlikely to cause offence. So I, I think probably, as I understand it, the reason for their decision was that today in New Zealand there's widespread use of the word tiki and representations of tiki. They've sort of become emblematic mm. of New Zealand. Whenever you hear about um, intellectual property rights, it always seems to focus on what's happening overseas. But here we have an example of something that's been used within Aotearoa that um, may cause offence to some within their own country. I think if it is shown that use of this trademark in relation to this product does cause offence, then there are provisions in the Trademarks Act which permit people who are aggrieved by the registration of a trademark, and the definition of aggrieved includes people who are culturally aggrieved, to apply to have the mark removed from the register. Mm -hmm. However, there is no legal means to prevent use of seven tiki if the mark were removed from the register. Hmm. Now you've also bought in this uh, interesting cup that I understand you bought in Orlando, Florida. Well, the, the cup is a cross between a totem pole with a and a tiki. Mm -hmm. And this was purchased from a restaurant in Orlando, and I understand there's a chain of these restaurants in the United States. And their menu, and including their drinks menu, is strongly influenced by Pacific cultures. I noticed, for example, names of cocktails and dishes at the restaurant had Maori names, Pacific hmm. names. And this is an example of perhaps an appropriate use, but it's in a foreign jurisdiction. Hmm. Um, in Auckland, where a rental car company used um, a billboard um, basically saying, well, I, I can't actually repeat it on air, um, but it caused offence and they had to take down their slogans and their billboards. Um, if I saw something that offended me, what would be my first step? If the logo were registered as a trademark, then there is a provision in the Act to apply to have the trademark removed if you're offended by it, by its use in relation to the particular goods. But if the trademark isn't registered, then there isn't a legal remedy mm. unless it's clearly obscene and provisions in the Crimes Act would apply. Barbara Sullivan, a Pākehā lawyer specialising in trademark and copyright laws, talking about the discussion she chaired on Indigenous rights at a conference run by the International Trademark Association. And of course you can send all compliments by email to tiahika at radioNZ.co.nz. Kei te pakarongo mai rā ki te ahi 
As Barbara mentioned in her kōrero, the rights of indigenous peoples is becoming increasingly encroached upon, as symbols, phrasing and tonga significant to indigenous peoples are used to brand and advertise products, more often than not, inappropriately and without authorisation. Which has led to worldwide discussion on how to protect indigenous taonga that has been spearheaded by indigenous nations. One group focusing on indigenous-centric solutions is the International Indian Treaty Council. The council highlights issues affecting indigenous nations from North, Central and South America and presents those issues to the attention of the United Nations. Andrea Carmen is the Executive Director of the International Indian Treaty Council. She attended this year's lively Waitangi Day festivities in Waitangi and spoke with Tanero Tuta. I'm here as a guest of the Maori Nation. Um, our um, Vice President of our Board of Directors is Hiniwirangi Kohu. The Maoris have been involved in the International Indian Treaty Council and on the Board of Directors since the 1980s. In fact, Tony Harawira, who's coordinating this event, was our first board member and it's at his invitation um, that I'm here today. He participated in a United Nations seminar on treaty rights that was in Canada last November, and he put the invitation that the International Indian Treaty Council should um, be here at Waitangi Day uh, this year. Now, of course, this isn't the first time you've been here. Yeah, this is my fourth time to be here uh, to commemorate the day of the Treaty of Waitangi um, here in Aotearoa. I was at Eva Ricard's at Ragland in 1996, was my first experience when she declared sovereignty of her um, nation area there. And we had a treaty conference also in 2003 in the Hamilton area at uh, Wairoa Marae, which international delegates from all over the world participated. And that also um, spanned the day of Treaty of Waitangi. And I have one other time that I was here um, in in preparation for that. We visited many Marais and did the protocol. It's wonderful to be here, and it's such an important um, commemoration to keep the treaty rights alive and also to keep alive the interpretation and the understanding of the indigenous peoples, which the United Nations has has upheld and affirmed, needs to be the version that is implemented and honored is in the understanding of the indigenous peoples. Um, so Te um, Tiriti, you say, is uh, the version that we uh, endorse, and we also know that there needs to be, according to the Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was adopted um, September 13th last year by the General Assembly, another way of addressing the restitution and redress of treaty violations based on free prior informed consent and full participation of both treaty partners, the Indigenous Peoples and the settler government um, partner, in deciding not just the outcome but the process by which um, treaties and treaty violations can be fairly decided. So we're looking to develop now, now that we have the declaration in place, a new way of approaching how treaty violations are decided and what the fair restitution should be, beginning with, as the declaration affirms, the first option is return of the land. How receptive have governments been towards um, uh, the declaration? Well, as I'm sure you've probably heard, that um, 
at the General Assembly on September 13th, where I had the privilege to be one of the Indigenous uh, delegates that was invited to actually sit down on the floor of the General Assembly, watch the scoreboard as it flashed after the vote. 144 countries voted in favor and only four voted against. And sad to say, New Zealand was one of those four. It was kind of interesting that three of the four are the three um, nation states that have the most treaties with indigenous peoples. I think it's kind of telling because uh, the International Indian Treaty Council went into the UN back in the 70s to uphold and, and honor the treaties that had been signed because we couldn't find a way working within the courts of those countries that had violated the treaties to find justice for um, implementing and upholding the treaties. So three of the four of these, United States, Canada, and New Zealand, um, that voted against, the other one was Australia, all former British colonies, um, interestingly enough, um, were the states that voted against. Nevertheless, it was overwhelmingly adopted and it does stand as a United Nations Declaration. We remember that 60 years ago the Universal Declaration on Human Rights wasn't uh, adopted by consensus either. But it has become customary international law and it is accepted the world over as a human rights standard that upholds the rights of individuals. The Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples upholds the rights of Indigenous Peoples. And we uh, fought long and hard to um, make the, the international arena and the countries that are members of the UN recognize that our rights are expressed collectively. Our rights to the land, to our culture, to the practice of our spirituality, to our language, um, to our identity is a collective identity and that's why it has to say peoples. Also because the United Nations through different human rights conventions that New Zealand is a party to has recognized that all peoples have the right to self-determination and by virtue of that right we freely determine our political status and freely pursue our economic, social and cultural development. These are rights recognized by legally binding instruments to which New Zealand is a party as belonging to all peoples, of course, including indigenous peoples. And we need to start looking at a new way of interacting with the nation states that um, is based on this new floor that we have now, is the full recognition of indigenous peoples as peoples with rights that accrue in legally binding human rights um, conventions. Um, accruing to all peoples. How much strength um, does the UN really have when it comes to implementing the, the declaration on, on other states? A declaration by definition is not legally binding on states such as the Declaration on um, Human Rights for example. It is aspirational but it does provide a moral and a political framework to which states can be held. Uh, but the important thing is also to remember that uh, by recognition of indigenous peoples as peoples with no qualifications, it also then um, by definition ensures that the application of rights that are legally binding, such as the right to self-determination for all peoples in convention and covenants, which are ratified by states and therefore are legally binding, that we, we um, are seen now as recipients of those rights without question. It should have made sense before. We always figured out how the United States position was 
yes, we've already agreed all peoples have these rights, but indigenous peoples aren't really peoples. That was their way of trying to get out. You probably heard of the years of fight for the S on peoples. That was why, because it does have a legal meaning that is enforceable in international law. I think that the adoption of the Declaration goes hand in hand with other decisions that have been made by um, treaty monitoring bodies which are legally enforceable, such as the CERD Committee. The right to free prior informed consent, for example, has already been upheld in General Recommendation 23 of the Committee for Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which New Zealand is bound by. But the Declaration just reinforces that those rights also apply to Indigenous peoples, and that has been accepted now by the world community, by the UN General Assembly, and it stands as such. So now it's just a question um, of implementing these rights. They aren't, they aren't a question anymore. I heard New Zealand's statement at the General Assembly on the 13th, and they said that they considered the Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples to be a wish list. Uh, and I wanted to let, yes, uh, to let them know that it's actually not a wish list, it's a rights list that now has been internationally upheld by the United Nations, and that changes its character. These rights are recognized, and it's just a matter now of talking about how we're going to implement them within each country and between each indigenous nation or people vis-a-vis uh, -vis the country in which we find ourselves living. And I think that the point to start is looking at the implementation of the Treaty of Waitangi and its um, originally understood principles by the Maori. Um, it's clear to me, just a little bit that, that I have come to know, it was not a transfer of land in any means. It was a recognition of mutual sovereignty and, in fact, an assurance of respect for Maori lands and resources. And as we continue to see, um, even through uh, the implementation, the adoption of the Foreshortened Seabed Act, which was challenged by the CERD, and we were honored to be able to help Maori um, participate in that process. In fact, our board president is the only indigenous member of the CERD committee. Um, he sits uh, nominated by the um, country of Guatemala. He's a Mayan Kachikel from Guatemala. And it's made a big difference um, to be able to access these UN bodies that do have uh, legally binding decision-making ability on the countries that have ratified them, and now indigenous rights are being looked at there. So taking the rights recognized in the Declaration and bringing them into that process does give it legal teeth and gives us a whole new arena. You know, it's a whole new day now, you know, in terms of the international recognition of indigenous peoples and those states and countries that choose to ignore that, um, they'll be outside of the accepted recognition of human rights by the world community. So New Zealand, I think, has to decide if that's where it wants to stand or whether it wants to rethink its position, like the government, the new government of Australia has done that, and they've approached us at the United Nations. They voted against, but they can't take back the vote. The vote is history. But now, with the new government there, they actually um, want to uh, change their position and begin to have discussions with Aboriginal peoples in Australia, but also Indigenous peoples around the world about how the Declaration can actually be implemented. And I've heard that um, from the top level of government of Australia now. They want to go. They want to go forward. Well, that's um, been proven by the new Australian government to actually say sorry. That's right. For the first time, I just came from a conference 
in Australia uh, talking about um, mining and uh, the right to free prior informed consent uh, of indigenous peoples and the obligation of states, of countries, to obtain that free prior informed consent before they allow any development which may affect indigenous peoples' lands, health, environment, food systems, etc. And this is also upheld very strongly in the UN Declaration. So it was very interesting. I was asked to give the, the keynote um, based on the international um, legal standing on the right of free prior informed consent and ICMM, which is um, the International Council on Mining and, Mi and Metals, participated as well as the World Conservation Congress and government representatives and indigenous representatives. And everybody there accepted that the right of free prior informed consent is no longer a question. It's how will this be implemented on the practical level. And consent is different than consultation or engagement. Maybe consultation and engagement are required to reach consent, but consent means the right to say no as well. It also means the right to have all the information, not just what the company wants to give you, including, we stressed, um, the need and the right to talk to other indigenous peoples, even in other countries, who've experienced these kinds of mines or whatever the form of development is, and, and can talk about the aftermath. You know, to know what is not just the best case scenario in terms of money and jobs, what is the worst case scenario? What happens if the tailings pile holding back the toxics from your river breaks, for example? What's, what could happen? So those, that kind of information and also respect for traditional decision-making processes within indigenous communities, um, what is the, the language that you need to have the information is, who needs to be involved in those decisions, the time it takes to take them, you know, that's what uh, prior means, before the plan is worked out or before millions of dollars are sunk into you know, development of, of a structure. The indigenous peoples need to be involved at every stage, and that's the right to free prior informed consent. That's why Canada said they voted against the declaration that indigenous peoples would have a veto. Well, maybe we should have a veto if our kids can get cancer from some chemical they're going to dump in their water. Why shouldn't we be able to say, no, we don't want it? How does the New Zealand situation look to you? I think it's really important, and what I've been able to do here is talk about the provisions of the Declaration that lay out in very simple terms uh, what the criteria and mechanism needs to be for redress of things like treaty violations or lands that have been taken uh, without free prior informed consent. And it talks about setting up a system that both parties participate in from the beginning, including agreement on what that decision-making process should look like, not just what the end product should be. I think that uh, Maoris are beginning to realize, and hopefully the New Zealand government will be able to realize, that this will only strengthen that treaty partnership that they initiated um, back in 1840, if it comes to here, um, that having strong and equally respected and equally recognized partners is a better basis for peace and justice in the world than having one dominant party and one weak and... and Suppressed? suppressed and angry party. You know, why can't we talk about a new form of relationship? 
uh, between indigenous peoples and nation states. That's the basis for um, the General Assembly um, implementation of two international decades. We're in the second one. Um, the decade of, of the world's indigenous peoples that talks about a partnership relationship that I think the treaties affirmed. The treaties were based on a partnership of equal sovereign parties. Let's go back to that formula that both parties agreed to at the beginning and talk about how we can redo some of the things that have been done. We can't go back to the past, but we can start today with the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples, we have a new floor. It's not the ceiling, but it's the floor. And it's an exciting time, and I hope that the government of New Zealand can recognize that, that really they have nothing to lose by rethinking that original relationship that they forged. They talk about all the time at the UN, the New Zealand government says, this is the founding document of our country. But okay, what are you doing about it now? the mutual recognition and mutual standing of the Maori nation, the Maori peoples, and the New Zealand government, the settler government, needs to be reaffirmed and reestablished. And the declaration gives us a wonderful tool to launch that new time, that new era, starting today. Why not? Andre Carmen of the Yaqui Nation and the executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. That interview was done on location in Waitangi during the Waitangi celebrations held earlier this year. You're listening to Tiahi Ka on Radio New Zealand National. Tainui Stevens, Te Rārawa, and Libby Hakaraya, Ngāti Raukaua Tōrangatira, are speaking with Nāhiwi Apanui, Ngāti Purau, Ngāti Hine Te Whānaua Apanui, about his Māori media network as recorded in August of 1998. I think one of the challenges that are face Māori media these days is, apart from the preservation of our real tikanga and associated taonga, is the matter of becoming commercially viable. And the Māori media network is starting to address this particular kaupapa. But here to talk to us about it is the manager of Radio Ngāti Poro, Ngāhiwi Apanui, who happens to be the coordinator of the Māori Media Network. Tēnā koe te tuakana, kia ora. Tēnā koe tainui, kōrua ko mea ko libi, tēnā kōrua. Kia ora. E hoa, could you just please explain to us the kaupapa of the Māori Media Network? Well, the Māori Media Network is essentially Māori radio, and um, I think for a long time we've been you know, faced with the problem of trying to get our market share to actually match up with our advertising receipts and, uh, you know, in terms of a national perspective, mm-hmm. um, we've we've uh, we've been told by AGB McNair that we have between eight to ten percent of of the uh, of, of the national audience, radio audience. Um, the problem is, is when it comes to divvying up the national advertising returns, we invariably end up with about uh, you know close to one percent, which is barely half a million dollars. So, mm. are you saying then that eight to ten percent are listening to EB Radio? Well, what happened back in uh, two or three years ago, we had AGB McNair commissioned by Te Mangai Paho actually um, do a survey into Māori radio listenership, and we found that um, of the total Māori population, um, around about 50% were listening mm-hmm. to Māori radio. Mm-hmm. So we've taken a general view of that and said, OK, 8 to 10% are, right. are listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that, that national audience here. The problem is we haven't been able to marry it up with the returns. Mm-hmm. And, um, for instance, I have one source who says that um, the Radio Bureau, for instance, sold... Forty-eight million dollars worth of advertising in the um, 
in the year ending uh, June uh, 97. Mm-hmm. However, you know, if, if, if we took 10% of that, it would be $4.8 million to Māori Radio. Well, that didn't happen. In mm. fact, we were, I think, lucky to receive um, three or 400000 mm-hmm. uh, for all 22 Māori Radio stations. Mm-hmm. So it's not a very good return when you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so mm. initially we looked at, okay, what is the problem with Māori Radio? Yes. We needed to look at that. And, of course, the Radio Bureau was quick to come back and say things like, OK, um, the clients perceive you to be Mickey Mouse, they perceive you to be unaccountable, they perceive you to be unprofessional. And my response to that was, how can they do that if they've never used us before? Yeah. Mm. So um, I was aware of, of, of some of the uh, the problems that Māori Radio and Māori organisations in general have in, in and doing the paperwork, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of the last thing you worry about. It's like the rugby team who, you know, sticks their team on the field, wins the game, and forgets to fill in the, um, you know, the player sheets yes, and yes. lose the game on a technicality. Mm-hmm. And, and now people are very much like that. They think, okay, we've done the work. That's it. We forget about the paperwork. That's you know, that's for pahers and, and other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that is, um, you know, in, in radio terms, that is proof that you've actually done the job. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, you know that, that, that's 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 one of the things we had to overcome is, is this perception in the in, in you know in the market that that Māori are unreliable and Mickey Mouse, mm. and so um, we took those on board too. But there was there still seemed to be something missing, you know. And um, so we, we looked around and and um, we've had several organisations, for instance, come to us in the in past four or five years and say, look, you know, we'll represent you mm-hmm. to advertising clients. Mm-hmm. Well, it's obvious then uh, that the that that advertisers realise the potential. But I'm just thinking, as you say about the Mickey Mouse thing, isn't it? Um, isn't it rather a sort of a catch twenty two that although, although you looked Iwi Radio, and I'm putting a big general brush stroke across the lot now. Now here we are looked as as being Mickey Mouse. They've survived almost uh, almost ten years with um, relatively little advertising revenue, if any. Well, that's the thing. You see, we've been beating ourselves up in, in, in Iwi Radio that we're, 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 you know, we're very unprofessional and, and, um, you know, and all these other things that people have, have, you know, have called us. You know, we've been beating ourselves up for a long time, and, mm. and we really need to stop doing it because to survive with the amount of funding that we've got, with the with the amount of expectation that's heaped upon us too, mm. and get to the stage that we've gotten to is actually a, a major success. Mm. Mm. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's never good enough, and people. You know, for instance, with Radio Ngāti Pro, I mean, we've we've had uh, we've been going now for just close to 11 years. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is our 11th year of broadcast. Right. And um, we have people who are still criticising the station, mm. and yet um, others who go away for a couple of years and come back and say, "Geez, the station's going really well," sure. because they've noticed the lift in you know in mm. performance. Mm. But I think in in terms of of Māori Radio in general, I mean, we we've got to stop beating ourselves up and say, okay, we are good, we're a success, we've arrived mm-hmm. here, and I think that the media network is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as, as with most Māori organisations, there's always one or two who are going to pull the plug after it's too late, you know, mm-hmm. and so we have to deal with those things as well, and, and that's part of the dynamic I've, I've become used to dealing with. But the, the Māori media network um, is essentially Māori radio trying to do something about um, the, you know, the, to ensure the survivability of Māori radio in, in the medium to long term. Mm. So it's presenting a united face, if you like, via a network to advertisers, to interested parties. Yeah, and what we're saying to the advertisers is, OK, um, you see, for instance, um, uh, I've done a lot of work over the last year looking at how things work because, I mean, people have been saying to me, OK, you know, um, te reo Māori won't sell. I think that's a load of rubbish. Yep. What it comes down to is market. And if you can say, okay, I've got eight to ten percent of the national market, then you've got a big weapon to hit mm. advertisers with. Now, Definitely. it doesn't matter whether you're broadcasting in English, Japanese, or Māori. If you if you're able to to hold that market share, I mean, there are not too many who can say, okay, we have a 
a 50% market, you know, a share of the market of our target market. Mm. Mm. No one radio station network in the country can mm. say that they have 50% of their intended target market. Mm. Mm. But we can say that. And so what we have to do is say to, say to the clients, okay, we are the only uh, Māori, you know, the only media network that has been established to service exclusively Māori. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nobody else is doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if you want to get to these people, you have to come through us. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it on our terms, which means broadcasting in Māori, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or bilingually at the very least. Um, and so that's a very important thing to be able to, to sell advertising on your terms. Right. As a, as a final um, thought, um, Ngahiwi, I suppose you've wrestled with the philosophy of combining the tapu of our taonga with the need to get a few bucks. How have you rationalised it? Well, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's an issue that's come up, and, and you know, um, the, old, the old one of intellectual property rights. Um, um, the, for instance, um, people were very worried about, um, about dialects, dialectual difference being sort of glazed over in a general type of te reo Māori or standardisation um, coming about as a result of the network. And so one of the values that I've been very, very quick to push is that um, the network should be about oneness, not sameness. Mm, mm. So you come together as a united group, but you come together as Ngāpuhi, as Ngāti Purau, as Ngāti Hene, as, you know, whoever else. Mm. You don't come together and say, OK, you're no longer, you know, Ngāpuhi, because, you're, you know, for, for Ngāpuhi people, their Māori tanga is sure. their Ngāpuhi tanga. And for sure. me, my Māori tanga is my Ngāti Purau tanga. Sure, mm. sure. So the, all of these things need to be looked after. And um, in terms of of protecting the tapu of Te Reo Māori, I suppose that's one of the first things that we we had to concern ourselves with mm. in that, uh, for instance, we had a, a few campaigns that uh, came via the Radio Bureau last year that a lot of the managers had problems with, yes. simply because, uh, here's one for instance, the social welfare fraud buster ad campaign. Mm. Mm. Right, you know, I'm yeah. a bit of an actor. Well, the people down at social welfare think I'm a bit of an actor, <laughs> especially when I tell them I haven't got a job. Yes. And it gets to Radio Ngāti Pai and, of course, myself, and, none of, you know, and, and they want us to voice the ads. Yes. And none of us are going to go and tell our, our cousins to go and tell on each other. Yes. So, you know, for, for us, you know, um, having the network is, is, is an opportunity to turn around to these people and say, sorry, that's not Māori friendly, we don't want it. Ngā hiwi apanui, ngā tiparau, ngā tihini, te whanua apanui, talking about the Māori Media Network with Tainui Stevens of Te Rarawa and Libby Hakaraya, ngā te rākaua, tōa Don't forget you can download this show and past episodes of Te Ahikā at radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahikā. Anei te whakamārama, a te whakatauki nei. Ihara i te mea he kotahi tangata, nana e whakara te pō. It is not the case of only one person being alert to the danger. More than one person should shoulder the burden of the event or task. Ko Alma Maua Ahau, ko Ngāpuhi Toko Iwi. Kia ora Alma, and that's us for this week. Next week, Te Ahikā checks out the inaugural World Indigenous Television Broadcasting Conference held recently in Tamaki Makaurau. He mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, ki te whānau i te whare pukapuka rātou ko nga kai waiata me nga kai rā wikiwiki mihini, nga mihi e hoa mā. E te iwi, hei a tērā wiki. Mauri ora tātou katoa. katoa.